Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we have already asked you to, to open our eyes. Thank you for that uh, um, little illustration from John's experience, Father, of how, what a difference perspective makes. And thank you that we can ask whatever we need from you. And now, as we come to that part in the service where we hear you speak to us through human words, uh, I'm quite aware of the fact, Father, of the severe and serious limitations that I myself represent, Father, as a human being through whom your words have to be filtered. And then for those of us who are listening, we acknowledge our limitations and so that we often hear filtering things through our own grids and our worldviews and our agendas, some of which we're not even aware of. Will you do what we have asked you to do? Get past my limitations in speaking, get past our limitations in listening, that we might actually have a real encounter with you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you, when you first heard that I was going to be doing this series on the Da Vinci Code, might have wondered, and one person actually asked me, why now at this time, well after this event, this book was really a phenomena, you know, which was about a couple of years ago, isn't all of it passé right now? What is the point doing this series right now? Uh, it's a good question, and it's a good place to start this series. Uh, let me approach it in a couple of ways. Uh, I, I don't drive very often, uh, but when I do, I listen to 680 News. Some of you do. And one of their promotional slogans goes something like this. Read it tomorrow, see it tonight, or hear it now. Remember that? Now, the implication behind that slogan is something like this. That if you wait till tomorrow to read about today's news, it's already passé. In fact, even if you wait till tonight to watch it on television, it's too late. If you really want to be with it, if you really want to be up to date with what's going on, hopefully so you can make informed judgments and respond to it, you need to get breaking news as and when it happens. And they tell you that quite often on that station. Well, of course, their livelihood depends on it, so they have to tell you that, right? Now, I want you to hold that in your mind, and then I want you to listen to this story. One of my favorite authors and speakers is an Englishman named Os Guinness, who lives in the United States. And so he has some wonderful counter-perspectives to give to us. And he was telling about a time when his grandparents were missionaries in China, so those are two cultures he loves. And he was telling about a time when there was a state dinner in China someplace, and uh, an American dignitary was sitting next to a Chinese uh, equivalent there. And I guess sometimes these things drag on for a while. And so in order to make conversation, the American dignitary turned to his Chinese counterpart and said, Sir, what do you think of the French Revolution? And for some of you who are not up to date in your history, that kind of happened about 250, 300 years ago, somewhere in that time span. The Chinese gentleman said to him, it's too soon to tell. (laughs) Now, I wonder what he would have thought of 680 News' slogan. They represent two completely different perspectives when it comes to assessing events that are going on around us and responding. Now, I admit that instantaneous and 200 years are pretty large extremes. Maybe the two years that I waited is kind of a reasonable balance. (laughs) But actually, you know, to be honest with you, I'm very glad that I waited, that I didn't preach some knee-jerk reactions to perceived or real dangers and threats about the Da Vinci Code. By waiting for a couple of years and reading and thinking about it, I've come to understand much better some of the issues involved. And actually some of the issues raised by the very success of the book, because these issues will remain even though the book has become passe right now. So let's kind of begin at that point. What are the issues that remain? Well, all of us know, most of us know that this was, this was a publishing phenomenon. 25 to 30 million books in 45 to 50 different languages. Uh, 35 to 40 weeks, I think, on the bestseller list, something like that. How come? Because certainly most people 
although it's an interesting enough page turner if you read it, it isn't exactly in the, in the genre of the classic mystery writers. And also the recent, uh, somebody handed me a critique of the movie when it came out. And one of the things they said was the movie showed how, how really uh, in a, um, not up to scratch all the impossible escape sequences and whatnot was involved in the book. So it's a pretty average book in that sense. How come it, it sold like this? Now, the answer is not easy, folks. And I want to remind you of what C.S. Lewis said to his people. Don't ask difficult questions and then complain if the answers aren't easy. Okay? So this is a difficult question and I want you to follow me. In fact, for throughout these three messages, it's, you're, going to have to, you're going to get into some territory that you're not familiar with. I want you to hang in there with me. The issue has to do with authority. Uh, in, a, in a paper that one friend of mine sent to me, uh, he refers to that point in the movie where Dr. Lee Teabing, who's the historical expert, uh, says this. Now, however, we are entering the age of Aquarius, the water bearer, whose ideals claim that man will learn the truth and be able to think for himself. The ideological shift is enormous and it is occurring right now. And the author who pointed this to my attention went on to say, this idea was put even more clearly by Brown in a Washington Post interview in 2003. He said, in the past, knowledge was something that was handed down by authority figures, substitute pastors, parents, teachers. And now we seek and discover for ourselves. And the author went on to comment, and I think correctly, and that sadly is an accurate description of the predominant mindset of the Western world. It is the core belief that lies behind books like the Da Vinci Code, and it is what makes them so attractive. It is a basic orientation of suspicion or outright rejection of authority as a source of any kind of truth. It goes more than authority. Dr. David Wells, who is a well-known philosopher, historian, uh, in his recent book, Christ in a Postmodern World, says this. The West today is not simply a product of the Enlightenment ideology with its rejection of authority and reliance on reason without revelation. But it's also the result of a process of consumeristic, technological, media-driven modernization. One effect of this modernization has been to give rise to the centrality of the psychologically oriented self in the place of the morally oriented human nature. And listen to this. All of this has produced a soil throughout society that positively invites the new spirituality. America is tuned into spiritual matters but not religious formulations. This makes it very easy to gain a hearing for what is spiritual but hard to maintain a genuinely biblical posture because that becomes part of religion. Many churches today have become meeting places for those who are searching spiritually but are not looking for the kind of faith which is spiritually tough and countercultural in a biblical way. Do you understand what he's saying? Combined with this issue of rejection of authority or suspicion of authority is a basic consumer mentality that will pick and choose what you want, just like in the grocery store, has basically seen a shift from seeing themselves as, as, morally nat- as a, having a fundamentally moral nature to a fundamentally psychological nature, and therefore wanting spirituality but with no formulations, because formulations and dogmas means ought to, responsibilities, what I should do versus taking away my autonomy and my freedom. That's what's going on. Now, into that kind of a mindset comes a man who writes an engaging book and in the midst of it makes these claims. Essentially, Jesus was not divine. The idea that Jesus was God was a creation of the 4th century church fathers. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had a child whose French descendants live today. Protected by a clandestine goddess cult whose members include some of the most famous men and women from the last millennium. And the Catholic Church is doing all they can to cover this up. That's basically his thesis. 
Or you can see why in this kind of anti-authoritarian, postmodernistic, consumeristic, spiritual but not religion-oriented mindset, that would be very welcome news. In fact, as uh, Dr. N.T. Uh, N. Wright put it, the subversive message, and it is subversive, that's the whole point, that's why it's so powerful, you don't even know you're getting it. This is the message. It is time to give up as historically unwarranted, theologically unjustified, and spiritually and socially damaging the picture of Jesus and Christian origins, which the church has put about for so long, and return to the supposedly original vision of Jesus himself, not least in terms of getting in touch with a different form of spirituality, notice, based on metaphor rather than truth, of feeling rather than structure, of discovering whatever faith you, you, you find that you can believe in, This will revive the truth for which Jesus lived and perhaps for which he died. Is it any wonder that the book was an unbelievable success? These issues, my brothers and sisters, remain with us long after the book becomes passé. It told the people what they want to believe and made it very believable. And perhaps there are some of you who are visiting with us today who consciously or unconsciously basically I've drifted into those kinds of perspectives. You are suspicious of authority, especially church authority. You are looking for spirituality, but you want to have nothing to do with formulations of any religion. You have acquired a view of the Bible and the New Testament and Christianity more from ABC's Peter Jennings and Time Magazine and Newsweek articles than from any actual study of history. As one man pointed out, most people in North America today acquire their view of history from movies and fiction rather than from reading history books. Their understanding of the Second World War comes from movies like Pearl Harbor. Their understanding of Native American Indian culture comes from the last of the Mohicans. If you're, if you're from that perspective, I want to thank you for accepting the invitation and coming here today. I hope in the next two, three weeks... I want to say a few things that might make you rethink some of those issues a little bit. And I just invite you to keep coming back. Well, what about those of the rest of us who, and who are the larger majority? You say, well, yeah, but I don't think like that. I don't have that anti-authoritarian mindset. Or at least you don't think you do. Because these things are subversive. Why should I listen to these things? Well, listen. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Christians also, by and large, are pretty ignorant of history. Especially most Christians are quite unaware of some of the key events that happened in the first five centuries of the church. And those are precisely the issues that Brown raises in his book without us even being aware of. It's a time for you to grow. It's a time for you to develop your understanding in certain areas where you might not have had many. And so as I said, I want to invite you to, with this journey, as I said, you're going, to, you're going to wrestle with concepts, words, phrases, ideas that you may not have heard of before. But you're sort of like the jury. Remember the O.J. Simpson jury 10 years ago? I remember I was on sabbatical at that time, so every afternoon I was having my lunch, I'd catch up on the latest in the, in the courtrooms. And you remember all that mountains of evidence on DNA and DNA matches and all that kind of stuff. Now imagine if you were a member of the jury. Imagine if the jury said, look, I'm not interested in all this stuff. I don't understand genetics. I don't need to know that. So just don't bore me with all this stuff. I'm not going to pay any attention to it. Well, they'd have to be kicked out of the jury because they wouldn't be doing their job because they were going to be called upon to make a verdict that would determine where a human being's destiny would be. Well, all of you are sitting in exactly the same kind of situation. You're going to be faced with testimony about terminology and issues that may not be that familiar with. But you're also being called upon to give a verdict or to cement a verdict you may already have had 
only this verdict has to do not with the destiny of one human being this verdict has to do with who Jesus is and whether the picture of him that we have in the scriptures is accurate or not and the implication of that is the eternal destinies of ourselves and people that we love that's why the series of messages that's why the issues remain with us and that's why no matter where you are on the spectrum on your spiritual journey you need to listen carefully and listen to all of them. The study guides will help you explore even further. And if you're visiting with us, you may not be aware of it. On the way out on the left, where you came in, there are study guides in the rack that will help you think a little bit further about some of these issues. Okay, let's kind of move into the, into the meteor parts of the, of the message itself. And for that, you need to understand a little bit about what's called historical fiction. It's a genre of literature. Uh, and probably the one into which Brown's book fits in. What is historical fiction? Now, in historical fiction, there are both foreground and background issues. The foreground characters are the characters that the author makes up and has total freedom to make these people up. Whatever background they have, whatever kinds of people they have, that's, what, that's why it's the fiction part of it. But the background is set in real history. So take, for example, novels that were written that were set in the Second World War. Hundreds and hundreds of historical fiction novels have been written that have been set in the Second World War. Now the foreground characters in each of these novels are totally fictitious. And the author has total freedom to do what he wants there. But the background data, which is the history of the Second World War, better be accurate. In all of these books, Hitler always loses, the Allies always win. That's good historical fiction. Now imagine if somebody came along and wrote a historical fiction of the Second World War where he or she created all their foreground characters with the total freedom that they have and then changed the background to make sure the Allies lost and Hitler won. What would you think of that? That's not historical fiction. That's exactly what Dan Brown has done. He has written historical fiction where he has not only created the foreground characters, Dr. T. Bing and Robert Langdon and, and Sophie Nerve and Bo Fash and all of those people and that was great. But he also changed the background. He basically rewrote what is first century, first five centuries Christian history. And what is even more damaging are claims throughout the book that that is real history. It's right up in the front. He makes no bones about that. So many times people say, well, it's only fiction. Why are you so worked up about it? Well, he doesn't claim it's fiction at all. The background part. He, obviously, the foreground is fiction. He does not claim the background is fiction. In a November 2003 Good Morning America interview, he said, if I were asked to write a book on these same issues and it was non-fictional, I wouldn't change one thing I've written in the book. And in his, before his prologue, on the opening page, on the opening page, before his prologue, he has a big bold letters, fact, and he writes these things. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And he mentions one particular set of documents relating to this organization called the Priory of Sion. He says the Priory of Sion, a European secret society found in 1099, is a real organization. In 1975, in Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale, discovered parchments identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including, among many others, Leonardo da Vinci. And these are, this is the group that safeguards the Holy Grail in the book. And of course, he implies throughout the book uh, all kinds of meticulous research by a whole host of assistants and whatnot. So let me just kind of begin here very quickly on just the factual side, and then we'll get on to the issues related to the scriptures. Take, take a look at the artwork, or the architecture, for example. Uh, Westminster Abbey, for example, features a lot in here. 
And Dr. Entry Wright, who's a professor at Cambridge, made this observation. He said, I know well only one of the buildings which features in the book, namely Westminster Abbey. He, the author, makes gaff after gaff, which could have been corrected by 10 minutes of walking around with his eyes open. 10 minutes observation by a junior research assistant could have put all this right. If Brown is so careless and carelessly inventive in details as easy to check as those, why should we trust him in anything else? And, this, and, there, and there's many, many other examples of archi- simple architectural errors that are in there, many of them. And then as far as the Priory of Sion was concerned, which he claimed was founded in 1099, and those documents were found. Yes, the documents were found, but they were all forgeries by a man named Pierre Plantard. And in 1993, Pierre Plantard was taken into a French court and openly acknowledged this entire hoax. And yet Brown has made it an organization that was founded in 1099. So the question for us to keep in mind, and for those of you who are thinking along these lines, if if he gets his simple history wrong so completely, and and claiming that there was careful research behind all of it, what about all those claims that he makes about things that happened 1,500 or 2,000 years ago, about which we have no eyewitness evidence uh, that we can produce right now? So those are some things to keep in mind. Let me now get into the actual text of New Testament history. And I want to begin with Mary Magdalene. Uh, not because it's the most uh, uh, shocking claim in the book, so to speak, for those of us who are, who are believers. But you will see why I chose Mary Magdalene to begin with. His thesis is simply this, that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. He was, a, he, was a, he was man, not God. They had a child named Sarah. After Jesus' death, Mary Magdalene and the child fled to France, where they were protected by the Knights Templar and the Secret Society. And uh, it is she and her descendants who are really the great Holy Grail of Scripture. Now, what, uh, what proof does Brown offer for this assessment? Here's another term that you've never heard of before. It's called the Nag Hammadi text. Uh, Nag Hammadi is placed in, Israel, in Egypt, close to the deserts of Egypt. And in 1945, they found several documents written in the Coptic language. Among these are various documents that are called Gospels. They're nothing like the Gospels we have. We look at the, we look at the Gnostic Gospels next week. But according to Dan Brown, his implication is that the true history of New Testament, the true picture of New Testament Christianity doesn't come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's all distorted and, and uh, doctored up for a, by Constantine. And we'll look at that next week as well. The real history comes from these Gnostic Gospels. So, and he implies that there are dozens and dozens of references to Mary Magdalene and incontrovertible proof that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Well, actually, there are only three references not numerous, there are only three references to Mary at all, Mary Magdalene, in these Gnostic Gospels. In the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Philip. And only one of them in the Gospel of Philip has anything to do with Jesus and Mary. And here's what the text in Gospel of Philip is. According to Dan Brown, this is what the text is. The companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene, but Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. Now for you and I who are... Orthodox Christians reading the scriptures, that will come like an unbelievable shock and say, where did this come from? What will we say to this? Brown claims that this is what the Gospel of Philip says. Well, first of all, that's not what the text says. Imagine if you got a letter from somebody and stashed it away someplace for years and years, in this case, 2,000 years. And then you opened up the letter and you tried to read it. There'd be words that would be missing because the ants have eaten through the paper at that point. Other things would have discolorations and splotches and you couldn't even see it. In other places, the ink would have faded away. Well, for all of these kinds of reasons, the actual manuscript is, is blocked all over. And out of these 26 words that are here, 
11 of them are missing. This is the only, the text that they actually have is this. And the companion of the blank, Mary Magdalene blank, far more than the disciples blank, kiss her blank, on her blank. So, 11 out of 26 words, almost 40% of the words are missing. And Dan Brown had to supply them. Or somebody else had to supply them for us. So that's our first answer. There's only one single reference to Mary in these things. Three, only one of them have to do with Jesus and Mary. And that one is completely flawed as the text. So we've got to make up a lot of the key elements. All those underlined words are the ones that have to be supplied. That's hardly incontrovertible evidence. Secondly, the word companion, which is one of the words we do have, is actually a word that is borrowed from the Greek into the Coptic language. Just like we borrow hallelujah, which is a Jewish word, right into our, our language. Or amen, for that matter. And that Greek word that is borrowed, translated companion, has nothing to do with the word wife. There's another word for wife altogether. So that would be a second response that we make to this. And then thirdly, perhaps at least as conclusive as the others, Professor Karen King at Harvard University, who's not exactly sympathetic to Orthodox or Evangelical Christianity, uh, and but is a student of these Gospels, says that these are to be interpreted primarily metaphorically, not literally at all. And that this whole idea of a kiss, whatever it was, this, all, this was a metaphor for the impartation of revelation. And it had to do with a second century argument, and we will talk about that next week, as to who receives revelation from God and how. So here's our answer to Dan Brown's supposedly incontrovertible evidence. Only three of these Gnostic Gospels mention Mary. Only one of them suggests any special relationship between Jesus and Mary. There are many gaps in the damaged text that we have to guess at. The word companion is not the usual Greek word for wine, for wife, and reputable scholars interpret such passages metaphorically. So much for Mary Magdalene in the Gnostic Gospels. What do we know of Mary Magdalene from the Scriptures? When we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are far more reliable, and next week we'll show you why. Here's what we find. First of all, she was from a town called Magdala, which is why she gets her name Magdalene, a town on the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, we are told that Jesus cast several demons out of her. Thirdly, she became a follower of Jesus. Fourthly, she was part of a group of women who traveled with Jesus and supported him out of their material resources, both financially and food and things like that. She witnessed the events surrounding the death of Jesus. She was present at the crucifixion. And then most important of all, she was one of the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene's real importance. You see, isn't it interesting that in a gospel that was written by men, in an admittedly patriarchal society, where women had no real social influence of any kind, not least had they any credibility at all as witnesses in any kind of legal setting. I mean, that was the status of women. Isn't it remarkable that a gospel written by men in such a situation made as the first witness to the resurrection a woman? I mean, if they wanted to create unbelief, if they wanted to create problems for themselves, that's exactly what they should have done. And as you know, if you read in the text, you will find that when Mary first came to the rest of the disciples, the men, and told them that Jesus was, was missing from the tomb, they dismissed it as nonsense. They didn't believe her herself. Humanly speaking, it would have been the surest way to discredit the message. The, so there's very strong internal evidence that suggests that they did it because this is the way it happened. That there was real resurrection and Mary was the first witness to that resurrection. And the resurrection is absolutely critical because it explains all of the behavior of the disciples afterwards in the book of Acts. At the end of his book, 
Robert Langdon, the hero, finds himself back at the Louvre where it all started, kneeling in front of that inverted pyramid, and he's kneeling in awe. And according to the author, he has, this, he has come back to his search. That is where he believes the bones of Mary Magdalene are buried. That is where he believes those documents are buried, that if exposed, would completely destroy Christianity as we know it. And then he is asked this question. Would he broadcast this to everybody? Here's what he says, according to Brown. He would not wave the flag of evidence in the faces of millions of deluded souls who believe the historical Christian faith. He says, quote from the book, Those who truly understand their faith understand the stories are metaphorical. Religious allegory has become a part of the fabric of reality. And living in that reality helps millions of people cope and be better people. See what he's saying? He's saying, it doesn't matter that those things didn't happen. I'm not going to expose all those people. Those poor little people are believing all these things. But they have value as metaphor. They have value as religious allegory. And this helps make people's lives a lot better. Listen, let me tell you something. The resurrection as allegory or metaphor would have been totally useless to the disciples. Because when they went out and preached, and if you read the New Testament Gospels, they did not preach a new religion from a new founder called Jesus. They did not preach a new set of rules from the Sermon on the Mount that replaced the old rules from the Ten Commandments. They were not giving lectures on poetry and metaphor and allegory as ways to make your life better and cope. No, no, no. The heart of their preaching was this Jesus who was crucified before your eyes has been raised from the dead. He is living today. Therefore, He is the supreme Lord of the universe. Which, of course, in that society meant the possibility of death because Caesar was supreme Lord of the universe. And because of this risen Christ, all of the promises that God had made to His people have come true. Our sins are forgiven. We have assurance that our sins are forgiven. We have power to live a new life through union with this Christ who lives within us. We are not afraid of death anymore and our eternity is settled. And all of that was rooted in the resurrection. Now tell me, tell me, why would these men in that kind of a setting, why would they invent the resurrection as a wonderful metaphor? I mean, they had followed this man for three years. They had given up their job. They had walked away from their father's fishing business. And for twelve, three years they had followed this, new, this man who was painting new visions, a new Messiah, promise of the uh, unfulfilled promises of centuries finally come true in him. Follow me. And they did that. And all of a sudden he dies before their eyes, the death of a common thief and a criminal. You think they would then go and manufacture a story that he rose from the dead as a religious allegory? That would be psychologically inconsistent with everything that we know as human beings. No, what they would have done if that had been the case, was they would walk away in disgust and say, fooled again. How could we have been so foolish to listen to one more self-called Messiah? Let's go back to our fishing. And you know what? If you read the Gospels, that's exactly what they did. Except, Jesus rose again from the dead. And they would transform men. These 12 men who were huddled inside a room so afraid that the people who had crucified Jesus might do the same to them were suddenly propelled out of that room into that hostile environment and began to proclaim this message. And tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 of them were actually martyred. Uh, not for a metaphor. Not for a religious allegory. But the Lord Jesus Christ who lives again. And Mary Magdalene was the first witness of that event.
My blessing for you is uh, just in the words of that song that we just sang. I want to bless you first of all with a receptive spirit. May God by His grace neutralize all those suspicions that are unhealthy. Leaving only those kinds of questions that will lead you to the truth. May He give you open hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear. And that risk-taking trust that at the right time will do what Roger didn't say. Do it and take that first step. And may you experience God in ways that you could never have imagined. Go in Jesus' name.